Is there a buzzing sound? Yeah. Now? Gone. It's a sad saga. Well, okay. In order that all sentient beings may attend Buddhahood, from my heart I take refuge in the three jewels. In order that all sentient beings may attain Buddhahood, from my heart I take refuge in the three jewels. In order that all sentient beings may attain Buddhahood, from my heart I take refuge in the three jewels. Whatever the virtues in the many fields of knowledge, all are steps on the path of omniscience. May these arise in the clear mirror of intellect. O Manjushri, please accomplish this. Excuse me. Oh, hi. Good evening. So, uh, here we are. <laughs> We're uh, class 10, so we only have three more classes left after tonight, I think. 11, 12, 13. Or maybe today is 11. Okay, so we have three more classes left, which means May. So we get to start if people are uh, interested, we can start another class in June. And I thought I would talk a little bit about that for starters this evening. See if I could uh, generate a little interest. And uh, basically the basic view in the Mahayana is that of the Mahayana, is <laughs> that of Madhyamaka, the middle way view. And uh, Nagarjuna is like the dude that presented the sort of perfect version of that because he made it so cryptic that it didn't have any nuances to it that could be misinterpreted. And then after him, you have two and two people who try to elaborate upon that, Buddha Palita and Bhava Viveka. And I think you guys know this story, but just briefly, Buddha Palita pretty much, <coughs> excuse me, followed Nagarjuna's lead. And uh, Bhava Viveka, um, Buddha Palita was sort of, he lived alone, he didn't have any students and I'm making this part up. And therefore, he didn't need to like explain it to anybody. He just sort of connected, clicked with Nagarjuna's presentation and just like sang these terse cryptic songs of uh, commentary on Nagarjuna's verses. 
in the same vein. And then Bob Viveka, he actually he worked for a living, had a job, and uh, a lot of students, and he had to actually relate to people. And so he developed a whole way of like explaining the system of the Garjana. But in doing that, he encountered a lot of different problems that knew, because uh, the guardian didn't fully explain all the nuances, so he got some of the stuff wrong. And so then later, Chandra Kirti comes along and uh, aligns himself with Bhava Viveka and uh, writes the key text for the Shedra system called the Introduction to the Middle Way in Sanskrit, the Madhyamaka Avatara. Avatara meaning entering into, as in Lanka Avatara, entering or vacationing in the island of Sri Lanka. And uh, so Madhyamaka Avatara is vacationing in the middle way. And, um, and then when we get to Tibet, initially, uh, well, I skipped two figures, right? So after Chandrakirti, you have Shanti Deva who writes this fabulous text that covers the whole pass in a, in a more detailed way. Chandra Kirti like, has like a page on each of the other paramitas, and then the sixth paramita, he has like a hundred pages. Uh, and so the whole thing is like 108 pages, exactly as usual. And um, Shanti David goes and writes this beautiful, inspiring, evocative text about the different stages of the path, the paramitas, and so forth, including a long chapter called the famous ninth chapter on wisdom, the uh, presentation of the middle way. And there he brings in, uh, uh, he follows along the footsteps of Chandra Kirti in that both of them go through the different schools of the Indian Buddhist tradition, traditionally schematized as four main schools, the last one, the first one being Vaibhashika, the second one being Sautrantika, the third one being Chittamatra, and the fourth one being Madhyamaka. And the Madhyamaka has these two branches, Bhavavavekas Swatantrika and Bodhapalata's uh, Prasangika. And Chandrakirti affiliates himself with that, presents that as the highest, as does Shantideva. And then um, Shantarakshita, who's like the last of the great Indian Buddhist teachers before uh, but the things in Buddhism get a little hairy and uh, it becomes primarily tantric Buddhism is left in India for a few centuries till that gets wiped out. And Shantarakshita attempts a little bit of a... Uh, uh, merger, a union, uh, merger between uh, Madhyamaka and Yogacara in his text, um, The Ornament of the Middle Way. And so that comes into Tibet. And uh, Shantarakshita himself goes to Tibet at the invitation of King Trisong Detson. And uh, the famous story is he tries to build a, a temple of Samye. And during the day, he makes the people uh, the people working with him make some progress, and then at night, all the local demons and the energies of the Bun tradition, which is prevalent in Tibet, take everything apart. So he says, "We got to invite a sorcerer 
to fix this situation, he says to the king, and I know just the guy for you, his name is Padmasambhava, and then, the, you know, the rest of that story. So Shantarakshita's presentation of Madhyamaka pervades the early so-called first turning of the Buddhism in Tibet, the Nyingma, the, the uh, historical early days of the of Buddhism in Tibet were, was what becomes the Nyingma tradition when there is a newer wave of Buddhism entering Tibet after the persecution. In retrospect, they say, well, that's the old tradition before the persecutions, and that becomes the Nyingma tradition. And um, so there's this king who tries to wipe out Buddhism and reinstate Bun. He gets assassinated and Buddhism comes back. And we get an influx of uh, some teachers from India, like Atisha. And then some Tibetans go to India and study with the remaining um, great masters, in particular people like Marpa, study with uh, Naropa and Maitripa. And then uh, there's the Sakya gentleman. Um, he studies with Varupa. Varupa studies with Dombipa. I'm a little bit weak on that. I got to brush up on my Sakya. <laughs> um, but then you have in, in Tibet, you have like uh, five main streams of interpretation of Prasangika. Uh, oh, I left something out. Sorry. <laughs> in about the uh, 12th century, as the 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 uh, teachers in Tibet are uh, uh, going through the, the translations from the early period of texts that they received that they could collect and uh, recapture from the early period before the persecution. And many texts were lost during that persecution, but they they recovered quite a many, quite a lot of them rather. And, uh, and then uh, they, they realized that there's some missing for one, there's some books that have been written in India over the last few hundred years that were not included, obviously, in the earlier transmission. They bring those. And there were some missing texts. Um, and in particular, oddly enough, the text by Chandra Kirti does not get translated in the early period. Now, Shantarakshita may have had something to do with that fact that Chandra Kirti's book didn't get translated. I don't know, there's rumors, I don't, who knows, it's a long time ago, water under the carpet sort of thing. And um, at any rate, somebody translates Chandra Kirti's text and says, whoa, this is pretty cool. And it's different than Shantarakshita's version. And so that then becomes the popular version somehow in Tibet, and everybody cleaves to that, says, oh, Prasanga is the best. All the schools say that, but then they say that publicly. But then the way the way that they get around that is by the way that they interpret Prasangika differs dramatically. So then you have Dolpopa, is the first master in Tibet that presents a main uh, version of Madhyamaka, interestingly, and he is the progenitor of the Zhentong, empty of other tradition. 
and he presents this radical diversion that's like way different from Chandrakirti, but claims to be uh, utilizing Chandrakirti and in accordance with Chandrakirti and Nagarjuna and everyone else, but just understanding them correctly. And then, so he has his main body of texts and presentation. Shortly thereafter, uh, simultaneously, you have Long Chenpa, who presents the Nyingma version of Madhyamaka. <clears throat> and, we, and we read that in a course recently, the Treasury of Philosophical Systems. And it wasn't that radical, one way or another. Sure, certainly wasn't uh, Zhentong. It seemed pretty much like pure prasangika. And then you have um, Tsongkhapa comes along as the, one of the inheritors of uh, Atisha's stream of teachings, the other inheritor being Gampopa, who brings that into the Kagya. And uh, Tsongkhapa, prolific writer, great master, in, uh, incredible teacher, realized and writes all these very uh, powerful books that gain a lot of popularity. Has a great publicist, and so his books like immediately get on the top shelves and near the counter, right near where you check out at all the bookstores. He becomes the most popular guy, and he writes this refutation of Dolpopa, and this clarification of like the way it really is. And he also critiques Baba Viveka and upholds Buddhapalata and Chandrakirti at great length, and. Uh, so he writes many books, but his one greatest masterpiece is called The Essence of True Eloquence, available in English. Dolpopa's is, um, he has a massive work called The Mountain Dharma, uh, which is, uh, sort of goes through the four schools in a, uh, sort of pedantic way. But then he has, uh, texts that are more like synthetic called, uh, The Fourth Council where he says there were three councils after the Buddha that everybody talks about, but there was a fourth one that brought together the divergent traditions of the Madhyamaka, of sorry, of the Mahayana, i.e. the Chittamatra and the Madhyamaka, which hasn't been talked about enough. So he writes this text called the Fourth Council. It's his most famous. And then Tsongkhapa, the essence of uh, eloquence, and then we have um, uh, maybe a similar time period, maybe a hundred or two later, uh, there's various Sakyapa, Sakya masters that uh, try to clarify things from their point of view. And the, the main one of those is named Gorampa, which is Tibetan for grumpy, old man. And he writes a text, text called Distinguishing the Views, which is nicely available in English. And he he goes through Dolpopa's system, critiques that. He critiques Tsongkhapa's system. And then he presents what he considers to be the true Madhyamaka system. Um, somewhere around the same time period, you have uh, one of the Karmapas, I think the eighth Karmapa, Mikya Dorje, writes commentaries on the Madhyamaka Avatara. And um, uh, as well as like a synthetic uh, text that 
that's been translated as feast for the fortunate big fat too fat too much too long book nothing like that dramatic honestly in his presentation he's pretty much a a prosonica which might surprise you Kagyu sort of became Shantongpa's after him like from the ninth karma onward they started leaning towards the left so to speak and uh, so he presents a pretty much straight prasanka madhyamaka um so the next the only uh there's nothing really new after that until mipam and then mipam again tries to create the synthesis of the divergent views doing similar to what gorampa did in critiquing dolpopa critiquing and presenting his own view. And in, in addition, he sort of goes back to Shantarakshita's uh, um, system of trying to combine <clears throat> the best of Madhyamaka and Yogacara and presents uh, his unique pres uh, version, uh, mostly in a book called uh, The Commentary on the Ninth Chapter of the Bod Bodhichara Avatar of Shanti Deva. And um, beyond that, he writes commentaries on many lar uh, of the big so-called Shastras, which are the, the uh, big uh, texts, analytical texts by the great Indian masters. Uh, but he doesn't really write any other synthetic texts of like, here's my version of uh, Madhyamaka. He basically just comments on uh, Shanti Deva's version, as in that ninth chapter, which is based on going through the four schools. But uh, some students of his gather up his notes and listen to his teachings and pull together his view. In particular, there's a gentleman named oh, Bo Botrol. He was uh, ancestor of Bo Diddley, and Bo Chul writes an amazing uh, presentation of this of the whole situation. Again, called "Distinguishing the Views and Philosophies," which is basically the title of Garampa's work. And uh, so, one of my long-term aspirations that I've had for a long time for this program, Rime Shedra is to read those, I think, four or five versions of presentation of Madhyamaka. Dolpopa, Atsankapa, Gorampa, and Mipam, those four. Uh, Mipam, his ninth chapter, and then uh, Botril, those five texts. But, you know, uh, I, I'm I've had this this hang up where um, when you study in the Shedra tradition, we and and we saw a little comment on that that sort of mentality in one of the readings for tonight, where Alan says that before you begin meditating, you're supposed to study traditionally the uh, Abhisamaya Lamkara, the ornament of higher realization, for five years, <laughs> you know, before you meditate. <laughs> so. That's obviously a little extreme, but it, it is very helpful to uh, study the the um, 
the way that the Abhidharma and valid cognition system and classifications of mental states is presented in the Shedra. There's like a primer. Every, every uh, tradition and almost every monastery or Shedra will have its own version of these texts, these like primer, uh, basic um, introductory texts that are meant to um, bring students to the point where they're ready to then study the more advanced texts. And there's one uh, in the Abhidharma world called uh, the Collected Topics, really catchy name. They're just like collection of, uh, but like definitions and explanations of all the aspects of existence, which is what the Abhidharma system is based, is basically focuses on. So one would study that before studying uh, Vasubandhu's Treasury of Abhidharma, which is the main text in the Shedra curriculum for Abhidharma. And then one would study the classifications of mental states um, as the precursor to studying the text on valid texts on valid cognition by Dharmakirti in particular, the commentary on valid cognition from Manavartika, and um, maybe some other texts. And similarly, before studying the, the introduction of the middle way, one would study a thing called the uh, the establishment of tenets or views in Tibetan Drupta, where you go through the views of the four schools in a very concise, definitional way. Um, and then before studying the ornament of higher realization, which goes through all the many elaborations of the paths and stages, one would study a little um, text that summarizes the paths and stages called uh, Sa Lam. And Sa means grounds, and Lam means paths. So grounds and paths. The ten grounds of the Bhumis of the Bodhisattva, and the paths being the five paths. And um, until recently, there's been no, uh, in my opinion, no viable version of the uh, class of the collected topics and the classifications of mental state texts in English, other than like the these very cryptic root texts that uh, Pulam Prabhupada's organization, Natarta Institute, produces, uh, has produced. Very fine works where they have these, what they call the root text of these different aspects of understanding. And then there's been extensive commentaries on those over the years at that program, beginning with Pulam Prabhupada himself giving a fabulous presentation of classifications of mind, and then his main co-teachers, uh, Charya Tenpa Gelson, doing a wonderful presentation on the collected topics, and a number of others, like a number of long commentaries on these. But none of them have been like edited and published in a viable format. What Natarta did instead uh, was they created like these workbooks of going through these uh, topics or areas of knowledge that are great, but they're a little bit too easy. And so it takes a very long time to get through basic information. And uh, it's a little bit, it's a little bit childlike. It's like, here's the, here's the 
content and then here's like a little exam on it you know after each section anyway oh, those courses are called mind and its world they those courses do have a name those booklets have a name and the course have a name and uh one of them is called mind and its world as rob says and has uh, part one and two, and that's the collected, uh, the classifications of mental states. And then there's the presentation of uh, the collected topics is regurgitated into workbooks called uh, Clear Thinking, one and two. Clear Thinking. Yeah. 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 There are four of mine and its world. Then they that's right, there's nine Then they by Vashika, Sautantrika, Chitamatra, and Madhyamaka. Yeah. And and with embedded in the in those courses is is the whole um, process of of uh, Dharma debate as well. Yeah, debate. So, <laughs> have you guys been there? Yes, no debate, but I haven't done the debate. But I I took the first two. I did Mind in its World one and two. And the Tarta. I take the four. Mine is World Four, and then Tantantika by Vashika. Did you go Kitamatra, out there? Majana. Did you guys go out there into uh, Vancouver, no. BC? No, I, I actually did Mine in This World One out out in uh, Bellingham, Washington, a few years ago. But then I repeated it again um, via Zoom last summer. Cool. Zoom. Zoom. Yeah. What's What's Zoom? So, uh, <laughs> just kidding. So I went out there. And, Zoom Dharma. Um, yeah. <laughs> Zoom Datu. I went yeah. out there in 2003, the summer of 2003, I went out there and did Natarta Institute for my one and only time. And uh, it was great. It was like connecting with this whole way of approaching the Dharma and, and learning the whole structure of it. I yeah. was just like so blown away. I was, I was like, whoa, yeah. this is amazing. And and I got really into it. And I taught a few of them in New York, like weekends with Steve yeah. Seeley. I don't know if anyone of you two did that. but um, I did that with you one time. I, I did one of and, those. Or I did yeah. some of those, yeah. Yeah. I don't mind about your world or something like that. Um, so anyway, the, what I was hoping we would do as a preparation for studying those great Madhyamaka texts was we would actually do a little of that preparation, but not in as extensive a, a format as the, what they do at Natarta with those workbooks, which takes quite some time. But, um, there's, there's, finally there, somebody came out with a very good English commentary in English on the topic. And so I was hoping that we could uh, use the root text of the collected topics, which is yeah. really tiny. You know, it's, yeah. like, it's like 20 yeah. pages. And it's all like very terse definitions. And then you need something to unpack it. And then recently, I don't know if you guys are aware of this, if you look at like the publishing world of Buddhist books very much, but the Dalai Lama and his people have like suddenly come out with huge numbers of his books, many of them packaged in these series. This woman, Tupton Children, this Western nun, has done an amazing job like packaging 
uh, his teachings. So a lot of these older books that were published in various versions, they've re brushed those off and made them nice, re-edited, re-moved things around and packaged them by topics. And they now have a series of six of those out of those. But then he he had um, his translator, Tupton Jinpa, work with uh, people from uh, uh, scholars from other monasteries of of the Galupa school that are like the main ones of the Shedra curriculum and come up with English versions of the materials in those um, the, the collected topics and the classifications in mind and so forth. And so, so far they have two volumes that have come out. It's called Science and Philosophy in the Indian Buddhist Classics. Mm-hmm. Volume 1, The Physical World. And so this has a commentary on basically the, the all of the the material in the collected uh, topics. And so I thought we could um, spring for those two books, the collected, this thing, which I think is now in paperback and, and in the, like around 20 to $25. And then this little tiny book from Natarta, they charge a lot. I don't know, it's like 20 or $30. It's yeah. like a do- dollar per page. It's basically <laughs> an outline. It's worth it. Sorry? It's basically an outline. Well, it's an outline with definitions. Right. But it, but it's, it's presented like, you know, in that Tibetan, you know, 1.1, 1.112, you know, the whole thing is like that. It's it's not easy reading. It's it's it's. it's no, that's why reading it alone is is sort of useless. You need a commentary, and uh, so finally, there's a viable commentary in English, which is not exactly a commentary on this particular root text, but it's they're they're all extremely similar. It, it's sort of before things get different based on the different uh, interpretations of Prasangika Madhyamaka. These texts are basically the same in all the different schools, these primers. Um, So I was hoping we could do that as the next course, and then in the fall do the classifications of mental states, which is their volume two, and then launch into uh, those, those five main texts and learn, uh, you know, and read the main books of these great masters of all these, of the five traditions of Tibetan Buddhism. And, and I'm including Zhentong uh, as a separate tradition, which a lot of people now do, including the Dalai Lama, if that captures your opinion. So that that was uh, my thought and hope on that, and I, I hope I can gain uh, your interest in that. It's it's a little uh, dry, <laughs> um, but you know, you guys made it through Carl Brunholzel and uh, you know that whole uh, thing. His presentation in uh, what was that book called? Luminous Heart. <laughs> oh come on! You can't compare in terms of dryness. The, the, these outlines are dry as toast. Luminous Heart has. You know, there's some luminosity there too. It's not the outline uh, that I'm talking about. 
I'm talking so, about the commentary in oh, these, okay. in these okay. new books. So now that and, so you're saying that's the next three classes. Well, the next class is the the, the commentary on the collected topics, and right. then in the fall, the commentary and the root text on the yeah. um, classifications of mental states, and then. Um, and then we do the Madhyamakas. Yeah, you know, it's questionable. Do we need to do like a, a tenants course? Do, do, do you have a five-year plan here, Derek? <laughs> I so just, when, that is the five-year. And that's like the, the five-year plan. There are at least three. That's, yeah. two, that's two years. And then that's like, you, we've done everything then at that point. Wow. And, uh, Except this uh, ninth chapter, right? No, I included well, that. I included Meepom's ninth chapter. Oh, that's going to come finally. <laughs> yeah, so maybe it wasn't that clear, or uh, no, no. I, you mentioned it, but confused. I didn't know that was included. I thought that was just uh, referenced in the historical part. Okay, so if it's right. okay with you, I'll run through it again. No, no, not I, it's okay. okay. So, cla uh, classifications. Uh, uh, what is it called? Collected topics. Collected classifications topics. of of uh, mind. FCBs and GCBs. <laughs> classifications of mental states in the fall and then maybe we'll do a, a tenants course in the winter and then we can jump into Zhentong uh, Dopopa um, and then Tsongkhapa, Gorampa, Mipam and Bochul I think this sounds fantastic I, I'm sort of psyched about it. Thanks. It's like let's <laughs> let's you know let's get a little preparation. You know, do some preparation, and then do all the major hits. You know, the the problem is that I've left out Chandrakirti's texts. You know, and did maybe that before, right? we did. We did. It was 17 years ago. We did. <laughs> some of you weren't born. Some of you weren't even born. <laughs> I didn't review it um like two years ago. Yeah, I think I was around for something. <laughs> <laughs> so by the end of this, you guys will know this stuff crystal clear and you won't say, Well, we studied something. You'll know exactly what you studied. <laughs> so topics is, is very, very dry, but, it, but it's also, I mean, it's, it's like the basic vocabulary or the grammar of, of, the, of the Madhyamaka that's built on it. Thank you, Rob. You and said it, it so well. I've been trying to, exp you know, I've said this here and there over the years, but it's like it, it creates, as you, like the, it's the vocabulary or it's the bones, it's the structure of like how to look at when yep. you know, when you say something is empty, it's like, what is a thing, and, and what does that it's mean? Way, you have to follow the definitions. The definitions really tell you. Well, exactly. in Litarta, anyway, I, it's a, they yeah, are very exactly. much into the definitions. I am too. That's the idea. <laughs> and the system right. logic is built on those definitions. Yes. Well, you got to yeah, be precise. You, you, you have to be memorize precise. them. It's like you memorize all the classifications and all the definitions. Oh. Well, like yeah. if this is true, it follows then that this is true, and if if it fall, falls within that 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 framework. Yeah, yeah. Well, we did some of this before. What what's the definition of a thing? Something that has a function, is it? That it performs a function. Yes. Thank you very much. That which performs a function. 
<laughs> so, so the thing is that if you don't do the definitions first, it's going to come up later anyway. What the hell do you mean by this, right? So, no. it, it comes up in a, in a scattered way, and it does, and right. you don't like realize that you need it until a certain point. So. Right? Yeah. No, it's it's all good. I didn't. I even though I said it was dry, I didn't mean it was bad. I just said it's dry. It's like a dry wine. Which doesn't mean that the wine is bad. Some some people like dry wines, right? And dry humor. Mm. So help us detach. <laughs> we can detach from our clean to entertainment by reading many dry. That's books. right. <laughs> <laughs> the rest yeah. of the week is entertaining, and then one night. I don't like dry wine, but I'll drink it, so I appreciate the sweet stuff more often. There you go. Yeah. No, I'd be into it. So how is tomorrow's, the course you start tomorrow, related with this whole plan you have of courses to come? Oh, thank you. That's a good question. Because I, I was, um, all the time I'm thinking, what is, how is this related with tomorrow's course? Yeah. So tomorrow's course is... Um, Inco. It's It's like, a, like intermediate level. Uh presentation of emptiness you know introduction is like we read books and there's like a chapter on emptiness and you know and so this is like intermediate in the sense that we're going to like try to really understand um um what are things empty of you know when we say that what does that mean of nature and uh the galupas it's a galupa book you know and um, in the spirit of the Rime Shedra, the Rime tradition, it's like appreciate the best of the different traditions. And the Galupas, they're just so good at at the beginning stage of understanding emptiness. Um, they have things that get weird, uh, but but they're so good at like focusing on when we say things are empty. What is it? It's a negation. We're negating things as not being empty and um, when we when we do that we're negating something and what is that thing that we negate you know so the whole uh, scheme of uh, methodology of identifying the object of negation is the Galupa specialty and it just makes so much sense implicative often, and non-implicative then you get confused. Yes, that's the whole thing. Yeah. <laughs> Derek, did we use that same book before? We no, use we use we use a book called Insight into Emptiness, which was similar but more difficult. Okay, I, I <coughs> same author. No, different author. Oh, okay. I, I They're think all the same. The maybe you, no, maybe you <laughs> talked about this one and then switched it. I thought that I thought this one came up before, just as. A, I probably did talk about the two of them and said, you know, the other one is a little more advanced, so we did that one. Right, that's where I got and, confused because uh, I saw the name. I said, I thought I've seen this name before. And it was good. That other one was good, but it had these odd sections in it, you know, where like emptiness is a thing <laughs> because it produces liberation, you know, so direct cognition of emptiness produces liberation. And uh, and then the other one is he has this weird way of dissing uh, other emptiness. You know, he like creates this childlike version of what other emptiness is. That's in the Insight into Emptiness book that we did a couple of years ago. 
But uh, introduction to emptiness. Uh, so that's my attempt to get this local group I, I'm part of to call the Westchester Meditation Center. People there to try to get them to uh, work on emptiness because uh, they're not quite into the remake or They're not all like nerds like us, basically. And nerds is a good thing we now know, right? So that's a compliment. <laughs> so, uh, you know, if if um, if you haven't studied emptiness before in some way, then that course tomorrow night will be very helpful. Or you know, even if, if we have studied, it's always helpful. Oh, it's, it's always helpful, yeah. You know, yeah. because yeah. you and always you, have doubts. I mean, the moment you understand it, then you don't. The <laughs> next day, you don't. And if you've strug- if people have struggled with other texts and, cor- and courses that we've had, then this would be a very helpful uh, way for for them to bring together their understanding of diverse things and uh, and focus on this topic. Can we drop in? Do drop in for that? You can. You can drop in any time. Yeah, that's what um, I was going to ask. Yeah, you don't have to take the whole thing. You don't have to pay a lot or anything for it. You know, go to that link that I finally realized yeah. I hadn't included <laughs> and check that out. And, um, you know, it'll show you how to get the Zoom links. And you can just, it's not like this course where, I email you the Zoom links. They're all on that website there. So just any Wednesday when you're able to come and drop in, that would be great. How many Wednesdays? It is uh, 11 or 12 Wednesdays. I think 11 11 Wednesdays. My next three are already booked, but I'll I'll, I'll try to remember to jump in after that. Cool. So, geez, that took a little longer. Sorry about that. Let's dive into the material tonight. And we had uh, a reading from last week that I didn't get to, which was called Meditative Quiescence, (coughs) from the book Buddhism with an Attitude. Folks able to find that. (coughs) Those of you who have or are using the source book, either hard copy or digital. It's on page, um, starts on page 237. 227. Thank you very much. 227. (laughs) And this one, uh, you know, a lot of it is ripped repetitive we've been through so i'm just going to touch on a few things and then dive in a little bit on uh, part of it that is uh, sort of newish for us so it begins with training the mind with mindfulness and introspection we've been through that over and over and over again so the only thing i want to point out in that is that on uh, page two of this text of this version of this oh can you knight me emily she she seems to have walked away. Sorry, which which uh, which article was this again? I'm sorry. I'm... It's called meditative quiescence. Ah, uh, thank you. Okay. Does anyone need me to recirculate that? Would that help? 
right now by email. No. Yes. Okay, hold on. Let's see. I did find it, so if I'm the only one who needed it, I have it. Cool. And I just sent it again. Okay. Thank you. Okay. It starts with training the mind and mindfulness introspection. We've been through that a lot. The only thing I want to point out is I like his his characterization of compulsive ideation on page two, the beginning of the the third full paragraph. He says, compulsive ideation is the mind frothing at the mouth. <laughs> I thought that was worth uh, sharing. And uh, then he maps out these this these two ways of looking at meditation in the Buddhist tradition as there being a control model and a release model. It's a little bit like the show Get Smart from years ago. We have chaos and control. Okay, good. Just see see if anybody remembers that TV show. Um. We've been, the uh, control model is very straightforward. We don't really need to go through that at all. The release model is more interesting, and he presents a little introduction to it, and then a, a dive into it. So first, let's see, how am I going to tell you where it is? It's on uh, the fourth page of this article. And there's a header at the very bottom of that page called the Control Approach to Meditative Stabilization. So it's just before that. And on this page, uh, in the middle of the page, it says, Buddhism offers many methods of training attentional stability that can be categorized into two basic approaches, control and release. Control approach entails being able to focus and sustain attention on a chosen object at will. The goal of the control model is to become a master of one's mind. Skipping a sentence, he says in the control model, the out-of-control elephant of the mind, or monkey of the mind, is maybe more also popular. It's gradually brought to heel 
as in the way a dog heals not to heal from a wound although your mind is sort of wounded beforehand and uh, the criterion for success in this model is straightforward you assess the stability of attention and observe whether the chosen object is held in the attention or not to assess vividness so these are the two qualities the two main qualities stability and vividness to assess vividness observe whether the object is clear so whether it's continuous or clear indicates stability and vividness the two main qualities of shaman so the second approach is the release model i'll skip the analogy um, so in the middle of that paragraph the release model when applied to the mind stream is similar instead of applying specific antidotes to all the toxins in the mind i.e as in the control model where you have the antidotes the obstacles and antidotes those schemes uh, one simply tries to stop polluting one's mind stream with grasping onto afflictive thoughts and emotions the the word simply is a little bit misleading possibly in particular in this next sentence he says this can be done quite simply <laughs> i have to take issue with him on this i don't know how simple that is for you guys but uh, by maintaining one's awareness without distraction and without mental grasping if that's simple for you then yeah that model is very simple i don't think it's that simple for most of us but maybe it's simpler and maybe it's it's certainly less complicated you know it's right mary beth you got us where we are good in this way when even when mental toxins arise the mind does not cling to them so the mind doesn't get upset about them and they're swept away effortlessly in the release model there is no object upon which to focus the attention meditative stability in the release model utilizes awareness itself with reference without reference to any specific object the release model is a field stability <laughs> maintaining awareness in the field of the mind without lashing onto any object the technical term for the release model is settling the mind in its natural state All right so we've seen a number of other presentations where he goes through settling the mind with an object there's different levels of concretization of the object ranging from very concrete like an external object to uh, the breath and then internal objects those different gradations and then there's just settling the mind in its natural state and um, so here he's like presenting them as two options in the past he's presented them uh, which is more common in the in the Mahamudra and Dzogchen traditions is to present shamatha in a progression going from a concrete object <coughs> to a non-concrete object to without object <coughs> and here he's just presenting two different options as if from uh, the start interestingly okay the uh, control approach and then we have let's see <coughs> oh sorry bless you <laughs> 
Um, so then a few pages in, he goes through the release model in some detail, which is nice. Everybody find that? A couple of more pages into the article, past the control model. The main practice of the release model is called settling the mind that's natural state. Natural state, note carefully, does not refer to the mind's customary state. <clears throat> There's nothing natural about our ordinary state of mind. Typical state of mind is distracted, carried away by one thought after another in this state. When the mind focuses, it is grasping, identified with thoughts, memories, hopes, fears, and emotions. When he says in this state, he means the typical state of ascension being. Or usual state. The usual state of our mind is like roaming the six realms of samsara from anguish to bliss and everything in between. The practice of settling the mind in its natural state is a very simple and direct practice to begin to break free from the bondage of this compulsive cycle. The quintessence of the release model for training the attention is let awareness come to rest without distraction, without grasping, simply. Without distraction means not being carried away by whatever drifts through the space of the mind. Without grasping means not identifying with or mentally grasping onto any of the events or emotions that come along. Let events arise, play themselves out, and vanish without intervention, i.e., on their own. So, in the control model, you would not be, you would cultivate non-distraction in the way of pulling the mind back from uh, following thoughts and other objects as they come along. In this method, the way you uh, work with the tendency to be drawn away by mental contents is by releasing the activity of uh, latching onto them. Instead of you know, latching onto the mind with a bigger hook, you know, your your mind gets caught by thought about something in the past or the future, and that hook pulls your mind away. In the control model, you bring like a huge hook or like a metal collar and put it around the neck and you like jerk your mind back into place. Stay. <laughs> and the release model, you just cut that the chain that has the hook on it that is pulling your mind away you just say <clears throat> can i aren't there more gentle ways of doing the control model in our tradition like what tell me well it, it I, somehow the flavor of hooks uh seems a little heavy compared to things like uh you know touching and going and you know things like that I, I don't know is touch and go more release than uh than control that's that's the question right it's our technique a control technique or a release technique any yeah. thoughts on that that, that famous uh, med, uh meditation instructor at karma choling what did he say thinking good buddy I've never heard this story. Who is this famous meditation? It was all about how we were so ungentle with ourselves when, we're, when, we, when we catch ourselves thinking. And so this guy, this guy was from the South, and he, he would just say, thinking good, buddy. <laughs> <laughs> is 
this is this a famous story in the in the tradition? I heard it a few times uh, when I was there. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sorry, I wasn't there then. I guess you had to be there. Yeah, but I mean, I, I get the flavor of it. It's definitely not a metal collar pulling you away. It's it's like hey, you know, it's it's celebrating that moment of awareness. Yeah, yeah. So I would say that our model, our technique is a release technique. I suspect that in some ways, relative to Rob's story, it, it also somewhat depends on who presents, you know, like both the instruction that one got and the way in which one interprets and plays it out. I think it's sort of also a little bit individual that even though I think overall I would agree that there's a lot of release in it, but I think that some people tend to lock more onto the... the uh, I agree. Thank you for adding that. Yeah, it varies. It's mm -hmm. it's it's a fine line. It sort of borders on the two of them, and, and it, it almost intentionally lets people decide for themselves how they're going to approach it, uh, because uh, depending on how they hear the instructions... You know, and which also may have something to do with what they them. need, you know, what, what's yeah. suitable for, the, for them. Yeah. So it's kind of an interesting... Yeah, which comes back to the progression idea instead of an either-or. Uh, let's see, the release model is quite different from the control that fixes fixes or fixates mindfulness with continuity on the object, breath, or mental image. In control model, mindfulness is like a rope that's tied to an object i.e. the breath or mental image. In the release model of settling the mind in its natural state, the rope is released. And mindfulness settles into the space of mental events. Practice of mindfulness of breathing releases the mind from attractive and unattractive perceptual conceptual stimuli that arouse craving aversion. Doing so or so doing, the mind already begins to heal naturally. I like this overall idea that the mind is like sick from compulsive frothing at the mouth and that by cultivating shamatha we, we're healing. Um, but in that practice they're still grasping onto an object in the control. So that in that technique practiced as a means of cultivating shamatha, delusion is not counteracted. Delusion in the sense of thinking there's obstacles and antidotes, I guess. In this practice of settling the mind in natural state, when releases grasping of all kinds onto neutral sensations as well as negative, positive stuff, the self-healing of the mind goes deeper, releasing all such dualistic fixation on mental sensory objects. Primordial awareness begins to shine through the veils of obscuration with greater and greater brilliance to practice settling the mind in its natural state. And so notice he doesn't really, in this article, he doesn't like clarify the natural state. Is that the substrate? Is that primordial? You know, he just mentioned primordial awareness, which in his other presentations was beyond the substrate. And in other presentations, he says, there's the natural state of mind, which is the substrate. And then there's beyond that primordial awareness. Anyway, to practice settling the mind in its natural state, I think these instructions were pretty okay. Sit with your eyes open, your gaze resting in the space in front of you. That's probably the hardest part, is to rest your gaze on space. 
And I heard something uh, today that I thought was maybe helpful. If you can think of space as something that you could move from one place to another, then that might help you locate the space in front of you as where to place your eyes. So it's like you could say, well, if I can move the space from the left side of the room over to the right side of the room and vice versa, then maybe I can identify the space that's right in front of me. I think you get the picture. Oh, let's see. Without being focused on any object, and draw your attention into the field of the mind. Into the field of the mind. Now, it helps if you've had what's called the, the uh, transmission that points out the nature of the mind. Because then you, you have a better idea of what this mind is that you're drawing your attention But you are changing into. focus. You are changing your focus. From what to what? From the objects that you were taken from in the other system, now you are focusing on the mind. And in, in what way do you focus on the mind? What is the mind as a focal object? Awareness. Awareness. Okay. So that's exactly what you're doing. You draw your attention to okay. the field of the mind, i.e. awareness. Okay, awareness. The gaze okay. is, important. is important. Disengage the attention from external objects and pay attention just to your mind. Yeah. Shapes and colors arise in the field of vision, sounds in the field of hearing. There's also a field of experience that's accessible only to the mind, thoughts, and so forth. Let your awareness come to rest within its own domain, within the field of your mind without extending itself out to sense fields. See if you can draw your awareness into the field in which these mental events emerge, play themselves out and vanish, and let your body be as still as a mountain, let your awareness be as open and friction-free as space, and let the breath be natural and unforced. So I just want to point out that the difference between this practice of settling the mind in its natural state and bringing the awareness into itself is different from the Vipassana practice in the following way. In the Vipassana practice, you then look at, well, you ask yourself, well, when I bring the awareness in upon itself, what does that mean? Where does my awareness go? And who is it that's being aware of what? And where is that awareness looking at? And so on and so forth. You know, they give shape and color, which for most of us is not that relevant, but like location. And like in in reference to uh, like the meditator and the meditated upon, but in here we're not doing that. We're just sort of assuming that it, we're, there's a simple simple way of doing that without asking any questions. You know, it's like okay, yeah, just bring awareness in on itself. No big deal, no problem. Bring your awareness into the field of the mind and attend closely. Allow the natural limpidity and luminosity of your awareness to emerge, shining a bright light in the space of your own mind. Let your awareness hover right in the immediacy of the present without slipping into thoughts about the past or future. Anything that arises, see if you can let your can awareness... Can I ask a question there? Yes, ma'am, yeah. So, if a thought arises in that domain of the mind, the field of the mind that he's talking about, there could be thoughts that 
in that context that relate to what he's calling the past or the future, even though I would argue they're all in the present when you're thinking them. So if the model here was to allow things to just arise and play out, do you, you is he making a distinction that there are certain types of thoughts that you don't just allow to arise and play out? Do you think? No, no. I think he's considering every possible type of thought in the same way. Because it, it, the, the fact that he says without slipping into, so it seems like he's saying certain types of thoughts you want to be avoiding, whereas it seems like a complete um, sort of acceptance of anything arises, even those would be okay to arise and, and disperse. So I'm just wondered about that one line. I'm getting that he's saying you ignore the content. Well, if you're not, I mean, if he's just talking about you don't elaborate and go further, sure, that's good. Um, but it seemed, it just seemed like it, it was an exclusionary possibility there. Anyway. He may clarify that if we hang in there. Ah, thank you so much. I can't read more than one time. It's possible. <laughs> I know we're anxious to get to the I remember the last time I read this, which I, I love this part, actually. I read it that previously and it's great <laughs> <coughs> let your awareness remain at rest non-interactive and non-judgmental keeping awareness in a state of stillness like empty space observe whatever arises observe the nature of each of the phenomena without grasping onto their reference now we don't analyze the nature we just observe the nature which is the difference between shamatha and vipassana attend fully to the very nature of the mental phenomena without giving any effort to creating sustaining or stopping any of them let them be arising playing themselves out and dissolving of their own accord see if you can perceive the origin duration and mode of disappearance of mental events without conceptual elaboration the crucial point is to perceive the mental events without grasping or identifying with them any more than space identifies with the birds and insects that fly through it. Let your awareness be completely at rest even when your mind is in motion. Let your awareness be at rest even though the mental function may be active in motion. So that's the release model. So that's like the reading we had for today where stillness and movement become one. That's correct. It's interesting. Um, There's some that, that don't like to use the terminology of at rest because it sort of implies that there is something that could be at rest. But I know it's used a lot, but I've, I've also read a lot of things that, that you that mention that too. So on the next page, in the, what's called the conclusion, in the second paragraph, he gives this analogy for the technique of practicing without distraction and grasping, which is what he calls the release model, the unhurried grandpa watching other people's children's play. And skipping two little sentences, he says, not intervening while observing vigilantly is the crux of the practice. An excellent word for this quality of awareness is limpidity. Limpidity 
sounds weird and it has the dual connotation of complete transparency like air or glass and also luminosity or brightness limpidity describes a pool of water in the desert emerging from a spring in the fine sand the bright sun shining through the water the pool is limpid completely transparent and luminous Anything that appears in the water, even a speck of dust, shine becomes brightly illuminated. This is the defining characteristic of the natural state of awareness, limpid, clear, luminous, and like space itself, not the least bit sticky. Okay. Let's talk about the readings for today. So we had two presentations, Shamatha Vipassana Indian Buddhist tradition, and then we had Shamatha Vipassana in the Dzogchen tradition. And I realized afterwards that I meant to only include the Shamatha versions, portions in this source book and save the Vipassana for later, but oh well. <laughs> you get to have fun reading both of them. I think the Dzogchen one was quite fun. So, uh, Shamatha, so <clears throat> Shamatha Vipassana Indian Buddhist tradition. It's page 239 of the source book, and it was the first of the two attachments for today's class. Um, the first couple of pages, not, not much of this article was new until the Vipassana section, actually. So, um, But on uh, page 3 of the PDF of this article, which is page 241 of the source book, and begins on the top of the page roughly uh, 1500 years of the Buddhist time, Atisha composed the first teaching on the stages of the path in Tibetan Lam Rim, specifically for Tibetans. <laughs> that sentence was the culmination of um, information conveyed on the page before where he talks about the importance of Shila Samadhi and Prajna in the Buddhist tradition, and that meditation comes within that context and upon the foundation of Shila so forth, the study of Buddhism and refuge and bodhicitta vows and so forth. So it doesn't occur within a vacuum, just like MBSR or the mindfulness movement today does. In the middle of the page, while there are many methods for developing shamatha, each with its special advantages, two are particularly emphasized in the Mahamudra tradition because of their great advantages for fathoming the nature of consciousness. Consciousness. The teacher of the Tibetan translator and founder of the Kagyu lineage, Marpa, was the 11th century Indian Mahasiddha Maitripa. <clears throat> As we know, Naropa was the other teacher of Marpa, but uh, he said to have had these, at least these two teachers, Naropa and then Maitripa plus many others. He describes the first method, which focuses on thoughts as follows in order, sorry, in relation to the excessive proliferation of conceptualization, including afflictions, etc., etc., etc. Skipping to the M-dash, is that the second part of the M-dash? I think that's called. Steadily and non-conceptually observe their nature. Once again, by doing so, they are calmed and non-grasping, clear and empty. Awareness vividly arises without grasping, and it, it arises in the nature of self-liberation in which it recognizes itself. Self-liberation in that, like, the clinging 
or the con the uh, fixation on content is self-liberated by virtue of looking at the nature of the awareness. Again, direct the attention to whatever thoughts arise, and without exception or, re or rejection, let it recognize its own nature. Um, in this way, implement the practical instructions on transforming ideation into the past. I misconstrued this slightly. My apologies. This was focused on thoughts, and I brought in looking at the nature of the mind. But here, the idea is looking at the nature of thoughts. And uh, just observing the nature of thoughts, not analyzing them, but just observing the way that thoughts are a manifestation of mental energy. Or thoughts are mental energy. They don't really have content. We imbue them with content. But, uh, you know, I, I find like thinking about the, the mind as the brain and uh, full of neurons. And if we, if we like think for a moment, well, our thoughts are neurons, there's, the neurons don't have, you know, people and cars and problems and, and all sorts of things in the neurons. They're just chemicals in those neurons and they have absolutely no, you know, they're totally indifferent to whatever you, content you imbue them with same sort of idea just looking at thoughts as mental movements it's like looking at your your stomach after you eat you know make some growling noises we don't like any you know maybe years ago people you know de developed all sorts of ideas of what the different types of growling meant but nowadays we don't imbue them with any importance at all here are my Chippa's instructions on the second method, which focuses on the absence of thoughts, if such a thing should ever occur. <clears throat> With the body possessing the seven attributes of Bhairochana, which means the seven points of the posture that we've all learned, sit upon a soft cushion in a solitary, darkened room. Interesting. I, I don't know that I've ever seen that before. Vacantly direct the eyes into the intervening vacuity in front of you. <laughs> There's vacuities all over the place, by the way. But in this case, we're, we're directing our eyes to the vacuity that's in front of us. See that the three conceptualizations or the, or the conceptualizations of the three, past, present, and future, as well as this and that and so on and so forth, are completely cut off. Bring no thoughts to mind. Let the mind, like a cloudless sky, be clear, empty, and evenly devoid of grasping and settle it in utter lucidity. By doing so, the shamato joy, clarity, non-conceptuality arises. Examine whether or not this entails attachment, hatred, clinging, grasping, and so forth. And recognize the difference between virtues and vices. Interesting. There are two traditional approaches to the path. One entails first. So um, anyway, th those are two interesting uh, schemes. The second one assumes that you can achieve a thought-free state, which might be a leap for most of me. I mean us. Um, here we have that fun statement about what you have to do before meditation. Um, let's see. 
And then he presents this, what he calls a synthesis of the two methods by this gentleman who's the main teacher, of Maham, the main presenter of Mahamudra and the Golupa tradition. Uh, I think he's the, the second Panchen Lama, Panchen Lozang Chuki Jelson. And he writes this uh, root text called the Precious Geluk Kagyu Mahamudra tradition, uh, which is the main one in the Golupa school. Of the two approaches of seeking to meditate on the base of view and seeking the view on the base of meditation, the following accords with the latter, which is pretty unusual for a Golupa to present that idea that you can uh, begin with meditation and from that develop the view. <clears throat> he gives the same introductory, uh, let's see, on a comfortable cushion, assume the sevenfold posture, do the ninefold cleansing of the breath, stale, stale breath, carefully distinguish between the radiant purity of awareness and its defilements. And with a pristinely virtuous mind, begin by taking refuge, bodhicitta, and uh, meditate on guru yoga, and uh, do hundreds of supplications, and then have the guru dissolve into you. So guru yoga practice <clears throat> as the preliminary. Do not modify the nature of evanescent appearances with thoughts such as hopes and fears. The key term is non-modification. Earlier we had a focus on non-distraction. Now we have a focus on non-modification. Rest for a while in unwavering meditative equipoise non-distraction. This is not a state in which your attention is blanked out as if you had fainted or fallen asleep. Rather, the post-century of undistracted mindfulness, uh, post-century of undistracted mindfulness and focus introspection on the movements of awareness, focus closely on the nature of cognizance and luminosity, observing it nakedly. Whatever thoughts arise, recognize each one. <clears throat> alternately, like a participant in a duel, completely cut off the thoughts that arise when their stillness, after they are banished, relax loosely without being, uh, but without losing mindfulness, like I just did. As it is said, focus closely and loosely relax. That sort of brings the two together. Non-distraction and uh, non-modification. It is there that the mind is settled. Non-distraction is focused closely. Non-modification is loosely relaxed. Relax without wandering, as the saying goes, when the mind that is tangled up in busyness loosens up, it undoubtedly frees itself. Whatever thoughts arise, if their nature is observed, they naturally disappear and a clear vacuity arises. Likewise, if the mind is examined when it's still a vivid, unobscured, luminous vacuity is perceived. Eric, sorry, can I, I have a question from the last paragraph. Um, what It says, whatever thoughts arise, recognize each one alternatively. Completely yes. cut off. So do you vacillate between? These are, two, these are two different options. Okay, so you do one or the other. Yeah. Okay. And, and the cutting of thoughts. So these are, these are Mahamudra uh, exercises for achieving shamatha. Um, and the second one there is radically different than the usual, you know, just relax and let 
thoughts go away on their own by not paying attention to them. But one of the exercises is to like aggressively cut your thoughts and as soon as you can cut them off, like that game, you know, where you, the things pop out of the hole and you bonk them on the head, you know. Whack them all. Whack them all, thank you. But in, in the, uh, the Tibetan tradition, or whatever, <laughs> they used to talk about the, the pig hitting the pig on the snout. That's it. That's the great analogy, right? As soon as the pig starts to come in the house, you hit him on the snout. So that the they garden. don't. I think they come into the garden and you just, you know. Ah, you there to... you go. Yeah. And so it's the idea that in a single session, you would do like do one of these and then in another session, you'd do the other or you would stick with one for 10 years or. No, this, this is more like uh, sort of playing around, trying trying to see different techniques. So you could do in the same session, you could do both and see what happens. Um, and I think the the general approach is to uh, focus uh, non-distractedly on the nature of mind and relax clinging. And the other exercise of cutting is to help you identify the vac what he's calling translated as vacuity, which normally would be called the still mind. You know, by cutting thoughts, we we uh, enhance the ability to see the clear, luminous nature of mind, and and we do that in a sort of contrived way by cutting thoughts initially. But it's helpful. It's it's a dualistic way. It's like creating a, a um, an ex uh, or bringing about an experience of the still mind by sort of manipulation. But it does give you a glimpse of what that still mind is like. And then if you can um, sort of remember what that stillness, that still vacuity or luminous empty quality of the mind is like, then without doing the chopping, then um, uh, you can then go and spend most of your time. The main technique is just doing the f uh, focus closely on that nature of the mind and relax anything that drags you away from that nature of the mind. This is why they say do short sessions. That also, so that your mind remains, your, your ability to identify that clear, luminous mind is enhanced because if you do longer sessions, your mind gets sort of muddy or dim. Kind of what you're doing, you know, or, or it, yeah, it, but it's like you do it a few times and then you sort of just relax and then you do it a few more times and relax. You could call each one of those doing it a few times a session, even though you haven't moved any, any, it's not like you get up and then get back down again. You do the session and then another session, like within a minute. Yeah, that's a really good point. Uh, normally, when we talk about sessions, we mean like the gong rings and you sit for 20 to 30 minutes and the gong rings and that's a session. What Rob is saying, like every time you enter into enter like what we would call like a good shamatha, that's a session. And then like a thought comes that distracts you away, that's the end of that session. You know, and, and the significance of that is that you actually then pause and sort of say, okay, I lost my focus. And, you know, you could literally, you know, sort of look around and, and shift, or you, somehow you just sort of markedly say, okay, let's try that again. 
and you have another session. There's also another technique that's sometimes presented of like trying to generate lots of thoughts. Like, okay, let's just like let thoughts go wild so I can practice not being attached to them. And uh, some people call that affectionately a thought party. Um, and sometimes it's like very hard to generate thoughts when you do it intentionally. It's like your mind just doesn't go along with what you want. <laughs> Which is sort of funny because other times it has no problem generating lots of thoughts. Um, likewise, if the mind, so whenever, whatever, whenever thoughts arise, if their nature is observed, they naturally disappear and a clear luminosity arises or emptiness arises. Likewise, if the mind is examined when it's still, a vivid, unobscured, luminous emptiness is perceived. And this is known as the fusion of stillness and motion. So being, you know, bringing out the, or, or enhancing the experience of that nature, what we call nature of mind. And this is not primordial awareness. This is just the basic um, ask characteristics, aspects of mind of being clear and empty or uh, knowing and reflective. And um, once you've identified that, then you can can um, be aware of that aspect of your experience even while there's activity going on, even when there's thoughts and distractions and so forth. You can you can be non-distracted by just relaxing into that space, that luminous space. And that's the fusion of stillness and motion. Initially you have to do it in a in a dualistic way. You have to create stillness so that you can identify it. You know what you're looking for. You know what you're identifying or relaxing into. And uh, you have to understand the nature of motion, of thoughts, as just being mental energy. <clears throat> so identify stillness, identify motion, and then identify the non-difference between the two, which is the fusion of stillness and motion. Whatever thoughts arise, don't block them, but recognize their movements, focus on their nature like a caged bird on a ship. We've seen that analogy before. <clears throat> Sustain your awareness as in the same, like a raven that flies from a ship, circles around and alights on board once again because it has nowhere to land other than the ship. Even though it's in a cage on the ship, it's better than drowning in the ocean. The nature of meditative equipoise is not obscured by anything, but is limpid and clear, not established as anything physical. It is a clear vacuity like space, allowing anything to arise. It is vividly awake, such is the nature of the mind. This is superior, superbly witnessed, is that what I said? Witnessed with direct perception, as opposed to inference, yet, yet it cannot be grasped as this or demonstrated with words. Uh, it, it, it's not like other objects that you can sort of grasp and describe. Whatever arises rests loosely without grasping, over and over again. Rest loosely without grasping. Nowadays, for the most part, contemplatives of Tibet uniformly proclaim this as practical advice for achieving enlightenment. However, I, the big shot, declare this to be an exceptionally skillful method for novices to achieve mental stability, i.e. shamatha, and to identify the relative nature of the mind. 
and he's alluding to the tendency to think that this is an advanced stage of in, in accomplishment, whereas it's just the basic experience of shamatha. The relative nature of the mind is sheer luminosity and cognizance, which are the defining characteristics of consciousness. The Buddha referred to this as the sign of the mind, and Alan has used that term before, identify the sign of the mind. And that's just seeing the nature of the mind as being luminous and empty. <clears throat> um, he declared that if one cultivates the four close applications of mindfulness without the mind being too concentrated, without having abandoned the impurities, one will not apprehend the essential nature of the mind. So he's coming back to his point of view and theme that you have to have a very advanced level of shamatha in order to uh, enter into Vipassana. These teachings on shamatha provide a basis not only for, for cultivation of the four immeasurables and bodhicitta, i.e. the paramitas, but also for the cultivation of insight through Vipassana of the four foundations of mindfulness or close application. So then he goes through the, those. And <clears throat> I think maybe we'll just pause there for tonight instead of trying to go through the Dzogchen. Why don't we'll just do that one next week? <clears throat> Even though it's only a few pages. Comments, thoughts, questions, suggestions? I enjoyed your awareness exercise at the beginning of the class. Thanks. Yeah, so that was, I, I had included in the syllabus and the source book, meditations taken from this book called uh, Mind in the Balance. And so I've been reading little snippets from, in that book, there's alternating sections of theory and practice. And the practice, it's way more elaborate than what I pulled out was just like the basis of the practice of bringing awareness onto itself. So, um, you know, try that in your, in your meditation practice, rest loosely with, and focus closely, non-distraction, non-modification, and uh, attend to the nature of the mind, the, the sign of the mind. Let's dedicate the merit and go about our ways. By this merit, may all obtain omniscience, may defeat the enemy, wrongdoing from the stormy ways of birth, old age, sickness, and death, from the ocean of samsara, may I free all beings. By the confidence of the golden sun of the great east, may the lotus garden of the Rigdon's wisdom bloom, may the dark ignorance of sentient beings be dispelled, May all beings enjoy profound, brilliant glory. Thank you. Nice to see you guys. Be well. Stay well. Take care. Thank you, Derek. Thank you. Thank you. Bye, Derek. Bye.